This is the Software and Technology Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. The more diversity of thought of the people working at tech companies, the better. The blockchain idea was around 91, the same idea of in the digital world, we need verifiable documents. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. I am your host, Tyler Kern, and joining me is Brandon Ballin. He's a freelance editor, and he's had a number of different titles, and we're going to talk about the projects that he has worked on as well over the years. But today, we are primarily going to talk about the increased availability of post-production software and how that's had an impact on the freelance market. Um, And Brandon has had a lot of experience in that. So we're going to discuss that today on the podcast. So let's just start up here, Brandon. Uh, Let's talk about some of the work that you've done in the past. Um, I guess we were kind of talking before the podcast and you were telling me all the different titles you've had. Uh, Kind of list those out for me and tell me some of your your favorite projects you've had so far. First, thank you again for having me. Uh, Good to be here. Um, So I started in post uh, when I was about 18 in 1998. Um, But uh, previous to that, uh, I'm the son of actors. So uh, I was sort of raised around the industry and my first... uh, glimpse of everything besides uh, growing up seeing my parents on TV was when I was 14, I was working on a film. It was this weird Showtime movie. And um, uh, I I was like a general intern. So I worked, did stuff for locations, art department, set dressing. Um, and I thought that was kind of fun. But in 98 was my first time uh, getting into post-production. A close friend of the family who was an editor um, had messed uh, for the first time on an avid and said oh if he ever gets a chance he'd like it so i was able to uh train at moviola digital this was just before they had built their big facility so i was able to uh my sister was doing something at disney at the time so i was able to get in as like a disney intern and was able to take the course for the price of the book so instead of a three thousand dollar course at that time i got in for like 175 bucks i had like 75 dollars i was saving up for a video game and hundred bucks someone gave me for uh, graduation. So um, after I got the first bite of editing and what the Avid Media Composer software could do, uh, I slowly saved up and um, took additional courses. And so uh, through by learning the software through a training school, I was able to work on a couple independent films as an assistant editor. Um, I then worked on my first TV show, which was World Scariest Police Videos. And um, I did that as an assistant editor, and then um, as I continued through, I, I got very good at conform work and uh, VFX editing, uh, besides the creative editing. So I've been an assist, a VFX editor, a conforming editor, an online editor. Um, so I, I like to joke and call myself a post-Ronin warrior, so I just wander around <laughs> from place to place, you know, whoever will have me. So what what are some of your favorite projects that you've worked on just uh, in those various capacities? Um, you know, do, do you have a, a favorite maybe TV show or movie or something along those lines that, that you've done in the past? Yeah, there's, there's you know, when you look at the tapestry of your life and you think of all the choices you made and all the work, but um, ones that stick out um, are uh, for five years, I was the, from 2002 to 2005, I was the sort of um, post-technician on the Dr. Phil show, and that was also my first union show. So from that, I'm, I'm thankful because um, I just established my pension plan and all that uh, good stuff. But um, for films, I was the stereoscopic editor on Piranha 3D, 
and that was my first time ever working on a stereoscopic project. And um, we can get into it a bit later too, but um, I helped pioneer a workflow for the stereoscopic stuff with Avid Media Composer on that one. Um, past three years, I was an um, online editor slash VFX editor for two Nickelodeon shows, Game Shakers and Henry Danger. And I'm currently working, I can't say the title, but I'm currently working on an indie action movie right now where I've also in sense become the digital lab due to it's very, very indie. And when uh, it was time to do the turnovers for the VFX plates, I said, oh, what facility are we working with for me to um, give my change lists and files to? And they're like, oh, you're the facility. And they handed me this just giant 70 terabyte Pegasus raid. And so I found myself having to upgrade my internet connection and send um, plates to a VFX house in Chile, <laughs> which I never thought, you know, you know, 10 years ago, if you, you know, you had to do all this from a major facility with fast broadband, and now you can just do it at home. Yeah, that's that to me is particularly fascinating, just that technology is sort of changing the way that we can do jobs and that um, and is changing, I guess, what we think of as possible. So how have you really seen the market change in that way or seen jobs and, and uh, this type of experience that you've had? How have you seen it evolve over, over time, I suppose, or in your time in the industry? Well, it was very interesting because in the, in the, um, Avid came out, Avid Media Composer came out, like in, in the sort of like early to mid 90s, like 94, and it really took on at around like 95, 96 as, as a dominance in the industry. Then, um, and, and I found it, you know, kind of at that time easy to get a job because if, if you had work history and you showed you were good at what you did, you could get work. Um, Final Cut um, 4 through 7 came out. We don't talk about Final Cut 10. <laughs> But Final Cut 4 through 7 came out, and then I noticed um, between uh, Final Cut 5 and 6, there was a flood in the market for people who felt they knew the software and they could work in the field. But there was a majority of them that couldn't handle the environment of a show, like be it through producer notes or, or certain critical things, because there is an emotional skin um, of armor you have to develop because a lot of times it's just a work situation and things get heated. So then I noticed um, shortly after that, uh, it wasn't as crazy to try to find work, uh, but this was also at the beginning where YouTube was starting to um, explode. So now, at the climate we're in now, there's tons of people monetizing uh, stuff off YouTube. I, I met this one young person and he was just starting out for like three, four years on YouTube stuff. He has like 50,000 subscribers, but like last year he made like, um, I think between seventeen dollars and $18,000 because I guess you get, uh, if your video is monetized and you have ads, you get like 10 cents per view and one cent per comment, be it positive or negative. So I always dabbled in thinking like, oh, maybe I missed out on something on YouTube, but you know, I'm always busy with work and you know, when it comes down to it, you're, you're at least working in your field and doing something you love. But with um, Disney, Apple, um, all these content uh, giants are now starting their streaming services because they saw the potential with what's been going on in YouTube. So what's nice this time around is that, yes, the market may get flooded again with people vying for work, but there's going to be so much work that you can still put food on the table, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And then you talking about YouTube like that kind of raised that question, I guess, in my mind that, you know, if the greater public's viewing habits changed like they, they have since you started in the industry and we stream more content than we ever have, how does that change work and how does that change life for you? Well, it's interesting because the, the, um, one of the interesting things is being in the union of the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA, which I was able to follow the SAG-AFTRA stuff through my folks, um, they were able to set their foothold on the streaming media residuals um, the IATSE group, uh, unfortunately, like they decided to hold fast and wait another three years to properly negotiate their terms. The issue with that, though, is that all these companies are making their stuff now, and there's going to be a huge bump in revenue and residuals for pensions and things now. And then three years from now, they could be like, oh, times are tough, or, you know, the bubble has deflated a bit. Because as with every, you know, um, term of something new, there's a big, huge surge. The same thing like with all the Bitcoin stuff and everything. And then it sort of like fizzles out and plateaus. So it just depends with um, everyone's at least going to be able to have work and stuff. But it's like you question what the future is. Because with all these things with people today, like you look at the climate from, from um, the realty industry and pensions and stuff everything is being affected by also the whole political climate. The big thing that affects me right now is that um, I'm not self-incorporated. And before this year, I could write off equipment. Um, all my software, all my hardware was tax deductible. Um, now, because of the tax changes, I can't. So like this year, when the new Mac Pro comes out, it, I don't get that deduction. And from what I've, it's been looking at, it's kind of interesting because um, they say it's starting at $6,000, but potentially if you get it full flat out, people are saying that, oh, it's going to be like four, a $40,000 computer. The issue with that, which is interesting, is that most ent entertainment people, unless they're incorporated, they can't write it off. And Apple, it seems, has levied itself with, um, I don't know if it was this year or the end of last year, but they started um, their own credit card company. And it almost seems like they're just, like how with all the software, which we'll have to get into that whole thing, um, all the software you don't really buy anymore. You you essentially are on subscription. So it almost seems like that's going to be the way it is with equipment. Because now Apple, being a credit firm, they could essentially lease you their big expensive computer. Because that was the same thing that happened with Adobe. I was part of everyone that received the very first survey, which was, hey... If uh, our software could do X, Y, and Z, would you pay a little extra? And everyone was like, yes, or this and that. And so when it came down to the results of the survey, they said, um, after the input of every all the features that everybody would, would want, the software, technically, if you were to buy it, would be $20,000. So we're becoming a subscription-based company. And so though everyone has complained that Adobe subscription, we all let it there because we said we wanted all these features. The other thing too is, you know, each company, they set their price. Each company, each company has their price on um, how much, like I, I think of it as a magical unicorn living in a stable and that's the software. And essentially they price out, well, this is how much it is for hay and water and lodging. So people 
it's a double-edged sword. People want to not have to continually pay for software, but if they don't, that software can't survive. And there's been so many um, lately, again, due to the political climate, but there's so much software and hardware that's been end of life. Like if you go to price out everything today, um, certain things that were great don't exist anymore. So um, you either have to settle for something more expensive or have to f do a workaround with it. Like for instance, certain things people loved using uh, MPEG Stream Clip and QuickTime 7 Pro, but those are all end of life. The um, I think the new direction everyone's going, there's not going to be any more .movs, but it'll just be like MXF files. That's really, really interesting. Now, I, I suppose that um, that software being available on a subscription model, I, I guess maybe that, that high upfront cost perhaps um, and more subscription type based thing might be more expensive in the long run, but people view it as a more manageable cost at a time. Um, and then that allows maybe more people to then have the software. Is that the case? And then does that allow for more people to be freelance? Yes. Well, what happens is because um, it's subscription and depending on, on now with the whole tax stuff, if you can write off the subscription or you just have to eat the cost, that's the same thing where a lot of people are going off on how Blackmagic Resolve, like you pay for it once and it's yours for all the versions, but who knows how long that's going to last. Adobe, because uh, everyone uses, for the most part, Photoshop. I know there's like some other side um, programs like GIMP and other sort of image processors, but everyone uses Photoshop. So Adobe realizes in that market that they can control stuff. They do make it palatable, so it's like a magazine subscription. Um, and you get to use the tools because if you tried to, I, I tried to find an alternate one time for Adobe Photo and there, there just isn't. It's like sometimes like the best tool for the job is the best tool. So from a freelance market though, that was the interesting thing is like a kid doing stuff on, um, still primarily on TV shows and stuff that I've worked on as Avid Media Composer, but I'm seeing a large influx with all the streaming stuff where they're using Adobe Premiere which essentially Adobe Premiere is like the sort of like life successor to um, Final Cut 7. Um, I know some of, you know, when, when originally back in the day, the guy who created Premiere made Final Cut 7. And then um, when they fired the 7 team for 10, some of those people went back to Adobe. Um, but going back to the question but yeah a lot of the, like if you're a kid out there today for de depending because they have student prices for $29 a month you can have the full Adobe suite which um, initially when when you were to first start out was like to buy it when you could buy it was like $3,000 like if you needed to have like everything and it was like um, $700 just for Photoshop so now the fact that you can lease or subscribe to something once a month, maybe you have uh, three months where you're working big on a project, you pay for that, and until the next project comes, you can at least um, suspend your subscription, and it helps cover costs, then you're not too much out of pocket. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and, and I suppose makes it more manageable for people to enter the enter the industry and get some sort of experience, which is valuable, I suppose. Just that um, people are able to to go that route. Um, if you were someone starting out today, would the subscription model make things easier for you than than maybe how it was when when you started in in 1998? Um, a lot of the stuff is more accessible for sure because when I first started, an Avid was like a hundred and something thousand dollars, and I remember um, in two thousand one, after scrimping and saving and, and using up some credit card stuff, I remember I put together my first home edit bay, which was a Final Cut set because I did so much work. Pro- probably an Avid for the, for the most part, I wanted to make sure I kept the Final Cut side. Uh, adequately ready if I had to do a Final Cut project. So I'd put together a whole uh, a G4 with an igniter. It was essentially almost the same edit system Walter Murch used on Cold Mountain, and it was about 60 grand um, at that time with with a uh, hard drive array and, and everything. Um, today, you could essentially do it with an iMac and stuff for, for 12 to 15, maybe 20 grand, have everything set up. Um, that's what's going to be interesting with this new Mac Pro, because they say starting at six grand, but I found this independent website where they, they said if you were to build it full out with all the RAM, Apple overprices the RAM, it would come out to like 40-something thousand dollars. But again, with Apple now being a credit firm, they could just make it, because that's what's happening with their phones now too, is essentially you can lease an iPhone, you can either buy an iPhone for a thousand dollars or you lease it. Uh, from Apple for like 40 bucks a month and then at that mid-range point you can decide to swap out your phone and just you continue to pay um, which which almost makes sense because a lot of the um, chips and batteries and equipment they uh, die so fast like the, these new round of iPhones like the battery like six months in all of a sudden your, your battery life is halved and it's almost they know this because when the whole battery gate thing happened on your phone, if you were to look at your battery, number one thing they say a battery is a consumable uh, item, and uh, it's expected to be replaced or or will degrade over time. Where before they were like our phone, nothing's wrong with our phones, and now, um, and that's the same thing. It's like so I I, it's hard to find myself investing so much money in a computer where when you used to be able to get like three, four, five years out of it, things change so fast. Um, I have a trash can Mac Pro, and uh, I remember I had to do an export for this director, and I was like, oh, use the newest codec. It was an hour and a half movie. It took like 15 hours, and uh, I was too much time invested into the export to stop it. And I Googled, and I found that it was a known problem with the uh, 2013 Mac Pro trash cans, and that the uh, newer iMacs fixed the issue, because it was something to do with the GPU Um and how it handled the the export of an H.265 file. And so that's like a known limitation with your older equipment. So it's like, that's that's what's so insane about it, is that with two, three-year time difference, they'll fix something. So it's like, you almost don't want to own your equipment anymore. Because then you could just swap it out. There, there used to be a guy, uh, and when I say guy, it's a general term, you know, like a, a merchant, you know, who goes around from place to place, not like a specific person. And um, he would, uh, and it could be a she, but the, the the person 
they pretty much had access to capital and they go to small upstart businesses and say, hey, I'll give you $50,000 and you can start yourself. And so you're paying them interest. They technically own the equipment. And so you're essentially leasing equipment from them. But that was at that time because there was no other way someone could just start up because a bank would be like, what do you mean the internet video thing? I don't know who you are and deny you your loan. So these people made tons of money from small startups because you'd also notice, though, when the startup wouldn't work out, um, there used to be a whole, um, it probably still is, but there was a website for broadcast liquidation equipment because you'd have all these companies trying to get their foot in the door and in one form, form or another, a partner will start a new company because the other one tanked, but the name was dragged in the mud, so they would just liquidate all the equipment. So you could get, you know, a table, an old computer, a printer at a pretty decent price because the person who initiated the loan for them was the one liquidating it, and they just want their money back. So that's why I kind of feel it's almost like we'll find out uh, this fall when the new uh, Apple stuff comes out if Apple is going to become that person. Like, they'll just be like, oh, we know you need all this fancy equipment, so just pay us a monthly thing and, you know, we'll we'll credit you. That's fascinating. So Apple would then become, quote-unquote, the guy, like what you're mentioning. Yeah, well, because they already are, because, I mean, just, just the whole fact that, because it, it didn't make sense to me why Apple would start a credit firm and then I figured, oh, maybe the phones. But then it was when I saw what the potential price was for the newer computers made me realize that puts them in prime position. They make interest of people. You know, they're just becoming their own. They're used, it was kind of funny. There used to be um, in TV, the FCC had a rule where um, a station couldn't make its own content. So essentially, like CBS couldn't make content for CBS. That's why they created Viacom. Um, there was a great, you know, uh, uh, show creator, Stephen J. Cannell, and he had said once, I worked on, on a, a tribute thing for him, and he had said originally due to that FCC regulation, like Brandon Tartikoff at NBC had come up with the A-Team, but he pretty much explained it to Stephen J. Cannell and said, make me the show. So after the FCC rule changed, Universal, CBS, they just wanted to make their own content. So it's essentially the same thing almost kind of with Apple because now that they control the money and the product, they just keep it all in house. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, that, that'll be something. It's speculation, yeah. but I mean, it's, 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 you know, that they're going to offer cause before they had financing, but you, they'd finance through a third party creditor. Now they are a creditor. So that'd be one of those. That's really, really interesting to watch kind of going forward, I suppose. Um, Interesting. Okay, so what what types of things then, if, if we pivot a little bit, what what kind of things? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that's a little too conspiracy theorist for, for even me. <laughs> no, but I, I'm into it. I'm into it. Uh, what kind of things and what kind of tools are uh, indispensable to what you do on a daily basis? So, on like for instance, on this film right now, I've primarily been using uh, Media Composer and Resolve. Uh, to convert these plates to EXR files. Um, but there's so many, besides Photoshop and After Effects, um, one thing I really do like is the CineX tools. Um, I was talking to someone about it, because initially, you know, I saw it at NAB like three years ago, and 
its main thing was like, oh, you can insert edit into a ProRes or DNX file and not have to re-export your whole film or TV show or, or whatever file. Um, but they've added so much more to it to where um, uh, with QuickTime 7 being dead, it has a QuickTime uh, metadata editor. So you can edit the metadata on the file. So if you had something that was HDR, but it had the wrong tag, instead of like exporting out the whole thing, it's just changing a little pull down. Uh, when I had to, when the director on this film wanted to see his stuff on his Apple TV, uh, I'd use Apple Compressor, but Compressor had a, uh, has a thing like, if you want to export out a surround sound file, you need to give it individual sound channels. So before I'd have to go through Avid and export out each channel, but with CineX tools, I was able to just extract the audio. A lot. Of, I don't think a lot of people know that how how valuable to be able to um, embed or extract audio is in a program because normally you have to use uh, three different steps to get to the point where in Cinex tools I just had could do it in one. Um, uh, another interesting thing in in the climate of stuff, there is a piece of software I recently discovered called Luma Fusion which is an iOS editor. So uh, it, it's right now works on, I think, iPhone and iPad. But uh, for, I had to help my dad out one time uh, with a self-tape for an audition. And I didn't have time. The normal workflow, I record it with Filmic Pro on my phone. I have to export the file to my computer, convert it so it would play in Avid. Um, but I had to get it out within 10 minutes and upload it to YouTube. And I by accident found this program called LumaFusion. Not only did I was able to access the um, 4K Filmic Pro file on the phone that recorded it, I was able to edit on the phone uh, in real time with the 4K file, add titles, and then upload it to YouTube. So I was able to take a hour and a half process and do it in uh, 15 minutes. So that's something else I think that will help people. Um, the I'm trying to think on there there's a, another program that um, I tend to um, review files in called Telestream switch um, so that's kind of been helpful you can see all your metadata and um, audio channels and that there seems to be like um, still more you know things especially with um, the formats changing there seems to be uh, more programs on the horizon that just are, are either on spec or just about out yet. Um, I'm trying to think of on, on scope. I don't want to get too off topic because it, it's just it's a myriad of stuff. Um, half the time when I run into a wall, I'll just Google the issue and sometimes there'll be a piece of software. And um, if not, uh, there's at least like three different ways to handle it uh, to get to the point you want. That's the one good thing about um, this industry is that there may not be a direct A to B path, but um, if you do a bit of zigzagging, you get the results you want. Sure, sure. That that absolutely makes sense to me. Now, one of the things about what you do in the editing world that um, is foreign to me that I'm always really curious about is workflows. So what's it like to build and create a workflow? Do you do that on a regular basis or are you kind of given your, I guess, a place in a specific workflow where you do what your, you know, your particular job on a project is and then hand it off to the next person? The interesting thing with that is I tend to find myself um, 
adapting certain workflows or getting in. Uh, I find myself where I'm in a situation where I normally hit that wall and I have to bust through it. So, for instance, on this one particular film that I'm working on now, the production had recorded um, the majority of the footage. That I guess there Ari has a set uh, anamorphic workflow. Um, I guess on the and again I inherited this project. So on the day that they were doing stuff on this project, they decided to record it in open gate, which is made for spherical lenses. But then they shot it with anamorphic lenses, so that created sort of an issue that normal people don't deal with the footage in a certain way. And I was able to uh, talk to Ari at NAB, and first he was like, "Oh, tell them not to record that," and I was like, "Well, this happened a year ago, so this is what I'm stuck with." And so, um, as long as you can identify the problem, you can at least then work out a solution. Um, going back to Piranha 3D, the interesting thing was back back then, stereoscopic has stereoscopic has been around you know forever since um, the view masters and finders and stuff from the 1800s. The interesting thing is in how the conform and tracking of shots was done at the time when we were working on Piranha 3D. So normally all these Technicolor and all the big houses, they normally would take the metadata from one of the eyes and then they'd have this big long conforming process. At the time, Avid had a program called Metafuse <coughs> and Metafuse would um, take um, the left and right eye info and it would generate a side-by-side -side, um, file that would have the metadata from a dominant eye, be it left or right. Um, as we were cutting through everything, doing the 3D reviews, everything was going fine. Somehow something came up where Technicolor said, oh, we want the metadata from both eyes. So at that time, everything was just one eye dominant. There was no way to get that info. And I was very fortunate um, to go to a guild screening for Avatar that had a Q&A with James Cameron. So what ended up happening was um, at the end of the film, they opened it up for the Q&A. And um, I raised my hand and he called on me and he said, uh, yes. And I said, how do you track your left and right eye metadata for the film? And he said, oh, for the CG or live action? And I said, both. And he said, oh, I sent it to Weta. Next question. So Weta is Peter Jackson's multi-million dollar VFX company. I did not have access to Weta. <clears throat> Though it was a Weinstein company movie for, uh, through Dimension Films, I still did not have access to Weta. And um, later, the next question that had come up, uh, that uh, Steve Rifkin, one of the editors, because uh, John Rafour, Steve Rifkin, and Cameron, they all cut the movie, they would say that they would cut with two tracks of video, one with each eye, but the eyes would always end up drifting. And with my background in reality t uh, TV, where I had to group multiple cameras together, I realized that if I could group my eyes together and then edit them, they wouldn't drift. So the next day I went back into work and I already had the left eye info as a side-by-side. -side, so I brought in the right eye just by itself and I grouped them together. And then I would overcut a group clip with the left uh, eye metadata in a side-by-side -side so we could watch it in 3D. 
and a right eye by itself. So when it was time to do the conform, I was able to just duplicate my sequence, change the angle to the other eye, and then commit the um, multicam edit so I had a left eye sequence and right eye sequence. So they were able to then conform much faster and there was no drift. And I'd written a whole email to Avid like, oh, I'm doing all this stuff inside the program natively. Is there a way to automate this? And so a couple months later, um, they'd come out with like media, uh, a demo for Media Composer 6. And what was funny is all the, the synergy terms are like, oh, you can group stereoscopic clips together. It's just like grouping and this and that. And I was like, oh my god, this is my email. So I was able to, uh, fortunate, be able to be on the beta testing of that. And it had a lot of depth of tools, like where you could change the um, the depth of the clip and all that stuff. The one thing that just sucked out of everything is that as soon as um, you know things looked good for 3D, the bubble kind of popped. And if you notice, there's not that many 3D things out right now. It, it did get sort of integrated in with a VR, but most 3D films they they don't even sell like 3D TVs like they used to. I'd found out like later that it was kind of sad that the the whole big conversion to digital, like, 3D was used as, like, sort of a Trojan horse because, um, well, to play this 3D movie, you have to have digital projectors. And so all the mom-and-pop places finally, you know, gave in and converted to digital. And then the 3D was just done because that was the main goal, apparently, at that time. Was, you know, then they don't have to, companies don't have to do uh, film prints. And they save all that money. That's really interesting. I had no idea that that was kind of the reasoning behind that that's pretty fascinating yeah well because because it's that whole thing again when there's a need and everybody adopts it then you're kind of like at the will of the people who created that you know so it's like that's that's the hard part that's what's still nice though that they're still you know you're not stuck with one specific set of software you can get multiple um goals achieved with different pieces of software Sometimes it would be great if there was an all end all be all end all be all piece of software, but then the problem is the innovation that strives for someone to make a feature. Like right now, with the the um, thing I noticed was um, Mystica. A lot of people are now getting to know what Mystica is. They they were the finishing solution on the Hobbit movies because they could deal with the high rate uh, frame rate stuff at forty eight when they were doing all the stereoscopic stuff. Um, initially, the big finishing systems, there was uh, Resolve, uh, Scratch, made by Assimilate, um, and now Mystica is doing their own sort of subscription-based thing uh, to get that market. So a couple of the high-end tools that, again, you had to spend all this money on, as things get more refined in the software, it can run on more consumer hardware. So the, I know Blackmagic came out with those eGPU systems and stuff. So there's, um, for the longest time, you couldn't do any VR stuff on a Mac. And in theory, with a MacBook Pro and, I mean, I've, I haven't tested it out because I only saw the marketing information. But with a Blackmagic eGPU, you could turn your Mac into a VR system. So... That's what's kind of interesting. There's always still going to be the whole PC Mac thing. Like, you know, yes, you could always build a PC cheaper and that could maybe run faster than a Mac. 
then Apple then catches up and then they have their whole tent pole computer that they put out for the year. Um, but again, that, at least we have that choice as consumers. So if, if something doesn't work one way, you can at least still get to your goal. Um, and, and the fact that you could run Media Composer or Resolve on Windows or Mac, um, for the major the Adobe software, like that's at least where it's nice that where it's platform agnostic for, for the major tools. There are some tools though, you know, that will only work on a Mac or only work on a PC. Um, you know, I, I remember so many times like you'd, you'd in, in a room, we'd have like this one PC set up because that was the only uh, computer that we could print certain uh, labels for our tapes on. We had to use this Avery label template and the software would only work on a PC. <laughs> and now it's kind of interesting with with uh, tape and CD and and other mediums are, are going away. Everything's digital and streaming now. That's a whole other discussion. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, I, um, man, I think we could keep talking about this forever, but, uh, unfortunately we have to cut things off. And so, <laughs> no, I know it. Well, thank you. I know there's, there's probably a lot of like, people be like, well, who, what? but it's, it's very interesting because it's a sign of the times that at least the variety is there. Yeah. I, I think, I think if anything, this has been, this conversation has been a really interesting snapshot, snapshot of this, you know, kind of unique period in time in this industry and it, it feels like everything because everything moves so fast is in a constant state of flux and so it's interesting just to get this snapshot and it'll be interesting just to see what this you know what some of the trends that we've talked about on this on this episode um where we are with those you know a year from now six months from now even you know and how things change one interesting thing is uh there's a guy who used to work for key code media his name's michael Thomas. he's working i think the company's called bebop um, where because the price of computers and everything is getting so expensive, that company, I guess, is doing, it's called zero client cloud editing. So essentially like you could use like a Mac mini or, a just whatever low powered computer, as long as you have a decent internet connection and you would remote into a more powerful computer that has all the software you would need to do. So it's like pretty much like, um, I was joking. Remember, like when Homer Simpson is like in the box and he's reaching in through the gloves, playing with the uh, radioactive material. Right, right. That's essentially one line of editing that's going to be happening. You're just going to like be at home or on a laptop and just log in to a more powerful computer and do all your stuff and let it export and just you know go on with your day. It's crazy. That is. Uh... That is absolutely crazy. Well, we'll have to uh, keep an eye on things, and uh, maybe we'll do this again in the future, and just kind of reevaluate where we are at that at that point in time. And it'll be uh, it'll definitely be an interesting conversation. But Brandon Ballin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, man. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. For more content just like this, head over to marketscale.com. Click on Industries at the top of the page and scroll down to Sports and Entertainment. There you'll find more interviews, uh, podcast interviews, video interviews, uh, written content as well. Lots of great stuff for you to consume and enjoy. So make sure to go check all of that out. We'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.